I, I wanted to do a little uh, kind of an addendum to our series that we've been in on the Holy Spirit and community. And so this morning, we're going to be spending actually a little bit of time in the book of Exodus. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you open it with me to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. And let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we come to you to hear from your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would make us attentive to your voice, that we would find hope and that we would be encouraged and exhorted and challenged as we sit before your word. So come Holy Spirit, speak to us, nourish us in your word this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So in his 1995 essay, Picky, 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 uh, writer John Tierney tries to figure out an answer to a question that so many New Yorkers will ask themselves on Valentine's Day. Why am I going home alone tonight? He proposes the answer that New Yorkers are peculiarly picky. And after researching the personal ads of five major city magazines, he found that in New York personal ads, they had an average of 5.7 requirements or criteria for a potential match. So for example, they had to be handsome and successful between the ages of 29 and 35. They had to play polo. And I think rather unjustly, they had to be taller than five foot nine. It's a grave injustice. Now, these 5.7 requirements exceeded the next closest city, which was Chicago, at 4.1. And he concludes that New Yorkers are peculiarly picky, being victim to what he names a flaw-o-matic, which he describes as an inner voice, a little worrying device in the brain that instantly spots flaws in a potential mate. Now, I found myself, and kind of hearing that, reading about that, uh, that um, I found myself actually with a flaw-o-matic when it comes to church. Now, a couple summers ago, I had an experience of uh, visiting a number of different churches. I was on sabbatical and doing some research for a dissertation I was writing. And so as part of that, I visited maybe a dozen different churches. And I found myself when I'd walk into this experience, not primarily sitting there and receiving, but rather evaluating and noticing all of the flaws, everything that they were doing wrong and everything that could be done better. Some of you have already had your flaw-o-matic at work over the last 30 minutes, haven't you? Now, I know I'm not alone, and many of you can relate. Many of you do have a penchant for spotting flaws in church, you know, and and there's no end of flaws in our own church. You know, of course, as we've been looking at the last several weeks in um, 1 Corinthians about the work of the Spirit, we think we're not open enough to the Holy Spirit. We're not evangelistic enough. Uh, We are not diverse enough ethnically or socioeconomically. And man, we need to be more generous and we need to be more open and honest and we need to be investing more in each other's lives and we we need to be speaking truthfully to each other. And there's so many ways in which we are flawed and we need to grow. And in many, many ways, and this flaw omatic is triggered, I think, for a lot of us. And of course, the Bible isn't always helpful because the Bible usually provides a very compelling picture about what the church is or what the church should be. And in light of the picture of what we should be, many of us are exposed and what we're not. 
And so, for example, a few weeks ago, I was reading a commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians, and there was one guy, his name is Richard Hayes. I love his commentary. I love, you know, kind of like his reflections on this book. And he made this statement, and it was striking. He said, the overall picture of the church that is implied in these verses is, to put it mildly, remarkable. Each one is empowered by the Spirit with one of these extraordinary gifts. Healings, miracles, revelatory speech are portrayed as everyday occurrences within this Spirit-empowered community. Any responsible interpreter must hold this image of the Christian community up against his or her own community and reflect seriously about the difference. And when we do, we instantly spot flaws. Amen? You can give me an amen. I mean, I feel like if there's anything we can amen, it's we got some flaws, right? Now, of course, you know, there are other personality types in this room and your problem is that you're not too picky. Your problem is that you're not picky enough. And many of you have settled in dating, you've settled in relationships, you've settled in churches for a a picture of, of church or relationships that is less than stellar, that is less than ideal. You know, C.S. Lewis once put it like this. He said, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by, uh, by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased." And of course, many of us are far too easily pleased with the kind of community we are. We're content that we are not that diverse or that we're not that dependent upon the spirit or that we're not that actively engaged in evangelism or service or justice or whatever it is. And so there is a place for us not being content with who we are and where we're at. But I don't wanna talk about that problem this morning. This morning, what I wanna talk to you about is the flaw-o-matic. I want to talk to you about this penchant that many of us have for being picky, picky, picky. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a masterful book on Christian community, and I think one of the reasons why this book is so masterful is because Bonhoeffer wrote this not in an ivory tower of some seminary, you know, office. Rather, he wrote it out of a personal experience he had of living in community and in an underground kind of like community in Nazi Germany. And in this book, he highlights a problem that he was noticing in the community. And the problem was, is that many of these people who are kind of like these Nazi dissidents who were like rejecting the Nazi regime, who are going into hiding, they came into this Christian community with an idealistic vision of what life was going to be like when they lived together in community. And he said this, He said, innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite set of ideas of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Shouldn't we come into this church family with some expectations and idealistic vision of what we should be? To a degree. He says, but here's the problem. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. 
He says, sometimes we have an idealistic vision of what we should be and we're so committed to that that we actually love it more than the flesh and blood people that are sitting next to us. And so we walk around just critical, judging everyone around us. And it's this penchant, you know, for being picky, picky, picky that I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to do it from an unusual text. We're going to be looking together at Exodus 16. Now, Exodus 16 isn't first about the Christian community. Exodus 16 is about manna from heaven. In context, uh, the children of Israel have been rescued from Egypt. They made it through the Red Sea. And now they're in the wilderness. And now things go a bit south. Look what it says in chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Really? Is that what life in Egypt was like? You just sat down by the meat pots and you ate bread to the full? Well, in the wilderness, they were kind of thinking that. So they say, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So back in chapter 14 and 15, the children of Israel just got on the other side of the Red Sea and they sang and danced with Miriam at the front of the line saying, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. But now they get here and things are south and they're hungry, they're wondering where they're going to eat. And look how God responds. Verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a, a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And then jump down to verse nine. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. And so say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. And then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Verse 13, and in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay on the ground. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord God has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat and you shall have an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. Now notice the question back in verse 15. This light, flake-like, sweet thing appears in the morning and the children of Israel look at it and it's unrecognizable to them. They say, what is it? And the word in Hebrew is man who? Man means what and who means this. 
They're like, what? What's this? And, and it, was, it was out of this original confusion derived from this question, what is it that they named the flaky stuff a little bit later, manna, which basically means what? <laughs> and they look down in verse 31. It says, now the house of Israel called its name, what? Or <laughs> manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded you. Eat an omer of it and let it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. As the Lord God commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now stop there. So there is so much to be drawn from this story. And in the years ahead, I do hope at some point to do a series through the book of Exodus and we can kind of get into the weeds and draw out all the different lessons there is to learn. But listen, the most basic lesson that we get from this story is simply this. God can be relied upon to provide what we need in the wilderness. God can be provided upon. You can trust God to give you what you need in the wilderness. But I want to make a few observations now about the peculiar provision of God, this manna. The first thing I want you to note is that manna is very, very strange. Now, you might remember about a year or so ago, I talked about manna and I pointed out that there are some scholars that think that the substance they called manna was actually a substance that was excreted from bugs that lived parasitically on local tamarisk trees because the sap is low in nitrogen and the bugs would have to eat it like crazy to get proper nutrition. And then they would excrete these white, yellowish balls of liquid that would fall to the ground quickly, dry into flakes. And it's white, it's flaky, it's nutritious, it's sweet. And it appears in the morning, but as the day wears on, it's ruined. In fact, uh, they point out that Bedouin tribes today eat a substance they called manna and it's precisely secreted bug juice. I read an article this week in the New York Times that pointed out that there was actually a guy who was traveling in the Middle East, came across the Bedouin tribes who were eating the substance and he went on to freeze dry some of this stuff and send it to upscale restaurants in New York where he sold it at top dollar, you know, this manna. Now, whether all of that, by the way, there it is. That's from the New York Times article. There it is. There's the stuff right there. Manna. What is it? <laughs> now, whether that's what manna is, I don't know. But what I want you to see in the story is that manna is very strange. When they see it on the ground, they say, man who, what is it? And it's not clear that it's edible, let alone the bread that God has rained down from heaven. He has to tell them what it is because for them, it's not obvious. And so they name it what? You know, forever marking this food with their initial confusion. And so first, the provision of God is strange. It's not what they were expecting. The second observation is that manna is not promised land food. 
You notice back in the story, you know, they eat manna for 40 years all the time when they're in the wilderness, but when they get into the promised land, no more manna. And that's because the promised land was better than manna. In fact, one of the, all the descriptive phrases to describe the land of Canaan, it's, it's always used to, 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 it's always described as this land of abundance that's flowing with milk and honey. You know, it's this, it's this land of abundance. So finally, when they, they don't need this old manna anymore because they're finally in the promised land. And so it's not promised land food. Thirdly, although manna is not promised land food, manna will sustain you in the wilderness. Manna was God's provision that was nutritious, that was flaky, that was light, that you could gather up and it would sustain you in the wilderness. All right, so what does all of this have to do with the church and how we view the church? Well, of course, this is a story about the provision of God. And what I want you to consider is that one of the most important provisions of God that he has given to us to nourish us and to sustain us in the wilderness on our way home to the promised land is the Christian community. You know, back in the day, you know, the reformers, famous reformers like Calvin and Luther and whatnot, uh, they said that there was two great means of grace. And they said the two means of grace were word and sacrament. So what is it that nourishes and sustains the church? What is the grace that kind of keeps us going on, on our journey through the wilderness? They said word and sacrament. And it's true, word and sacrament are important means of God's grace to nourish and sustain us. But what we've seen in the book of 1 Corinthians is that there's a third means of grace. And it's not just word and sacrament, it is the Christian community. In other words, the people around you are actually conduits of God's grace into your life to nourish and sustain you on your way through the wilderness into the promised land. And so the church is the gracious provision of God. But there's some other ways in which the church is like manna. This kind of unique provision that God has given us all, namely the Christian community, is like manna. And the first is this, church people are strange, right? Like manna, church people are very, very Strange. Now, if you're wondering right now if I'm talking about you, yes, I am talking about you. You are all weird. And I'm weird. You know, the other day we had, we had um, over to our house uh, uh, Joshua Kenyatta and uh, Jonathan Wee, who are both interns at our church. And so we had them over for dinner and we were hanging out with them. And after dinner, we did some karaoke. And Jonathan Wee was the judge of karaoke because he sings way too great to compete with the rest of us. We just all want to sit and watch him. You know, we all melt. Just I, I melt listening to Jonathan sing, you know, um, Moana and such. But... Um, <laughs> But we're sitting there and and he wanted to kind of mix it up. And so he had us, um, you know, for one round, we were supposed to dance along with sing. And so the best dance routine with the song got the advance. And then the one after that, you were supposed to take your song, you know, Ed Sheeran or, you know, Taylor Swift or something and sing it in operatic tones, you know, so we had to do that, you know. And, um, And in the middle of my dance, I look up and my daughter Lucy is recording it. 
And so I just wanted to, no, just kidding. I'm not, not, I will not do that. We're actually have a, a we are going to do a new building campaign though. And for a small fee, we'll let you watch it. You can contribute. But I thought, man, we are weird. Like, this is just strange. You know, here we are hanging out with the interns, like singing and dancing, you know, operatic singing of, you know, Ed Sheeran. And we're like, what, what is, what's wrong with us, you know? Look, we're all strange. Now, I understand church people don't have a corner on weird. The reality is, is that weird goes all the way around because the people around you are not you. Ergo, they are strange. They are other than you. They've got different political ideas. They've got different life experiences and troubles and issues and ideas and thoughts. And so we are all, church people are strange. People are strange. When you're a stranger, paces look ugly, right? That's, is that the doors? It just came to me right there. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, so church people are strange. Um, you know, they might, be nor- they might not be normal. They might be the equivalent of bug juice to you, right? Second, church people are not promised land food. Like there is coming a day when God makes everything right and those who are followers of Jesus will finally ultimately be what the Bible calls as glorified. Like we're gonna be the glorious spotless bride of Christ. We're gonna finally be that community of equality and justice and love. The church is gonna shine as the multi-ethnic, multi-generational, you know, diverse socioeconomic community of sharing and justice that we have always been meant to be like, this is when God makes everything new. Like one day we will get to the promised land and your deepest longing for community, for people to listen to you and always understand, to always say, the right word, to always know your need, to always meet it, like that is going to be met in abundance when we get to, to the promised land. The church is not promised land food because you're surrounded by a bunch of broken people. You're surrounded by a bunch of messed up people. And so that means people will let you down. The person sitting next to you will let you down. The person talking to you right now, your pastor will let you down. And it's likely if you've been around church for any number of time, you have been let down, haven't you? You wanted them to call when you were broken and when you were hurting, when you lost somebody and they didn't call. You wanted them to come visit you and they didn't come visit you in the hospital. You wanted them to make the decision about your program that you wanted them, they didn't make it. And you've been let down, you've been hurt. You've been stabbed in the back. And it's because the Christian community is not promised land food. But here's the third thing that we, we see The Christian community is God's provision to sustain and nourish you in the wilderness. Listen, we are strange, we are not promised land food, but but God has what God has given us is enough to sustain and nourish us in the wilderness. Now, the people around you, mentors, friends, people in your community group, people who you serve with, uh, friends that you have that are followers of Jesus, they're not gonna satisfy your every longing. They cannot save you. They cannot redeem you. They cannot bring you into the promised land. Only Jesus can do that. But they are the surprising provision of God meant to sustain us in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Now listen, 
I'm not saying for a second that we should settle. We should just settle. You know, I remember uh, years ago, my grandma Thea, amazing, amazing woman, you know, we're having Christmas dinner at her house and we walked into the kitchen and grandma was putting hot dogs in the uh, big thing to boil hot dogs. And I said, Grandma, what do we, we're having hot dog, boiled hot dogs for Christmas Eve dinner? Grandma, what's going on? And she said, well, uh, you know, honey, it's just us. You know, we're not having any special people this time. It's just us. <laughs> what am I, chopped liver? You know, it's kind of, let's just settle for the boiled hot dogs. You know, it's just us. <laughs> listen, I'm not saying we should just settle. Christchurch, listen, God has a vision of the kind of community he wants us to be. He does want us to be more open to the Holy Spirit, to be a community that God is working through. He wants us to be more full of love and grace and patience and kindness. He wants us to grow, to be a community that does deeds of justice, that cares for the poor and the sick and the hurting and the dying, that preaches the gospel faithfully. God wants us to know each other and to have this be a community where we're known by each other. But listen, I'm not saying that God, but what I am saying is this, make sure that when you look up at the vision that God has for us, that you also look down and you see the surprising provision of God all around you. Because listen, on the ground is the stuff of the providence of God in your life. It is the good, gracious providence of God given to you as sheer gift to sustain you. I was thinking about this last night. I was laying in bed. I couldn't sleep as I often can't do on a Sunday night <laughs> or a Saturday night. I sleep great on Sunday night. <laughs> but I was just thinking back to my life and I, I, I just recognized the gift and the grace that God has given to me in the people he brought around me. I became a serious follower of Jesus when I was in high school and my life was transformed. I remember when my brother graduated, he was a year ahead of me, we were best friends. All of my friends were like a year or two or three ahead of me. And I was afraid, I was like, my brother's graduating. I'm gonna go to the campus next year. I'm not gonna know anybody in the quad. I was actually fearful going into my senior year and it was my junior year that had my big awakening. And it was that year that God brought provision in my life. He brought me Christian friends and they were enough to sustain me, gift and grace. And of course, God brought around me this awkward, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a part of the most vibrant. It wasn't the largest. It wasn't, didn't have all the hip kid youth group. You know, we didn't have like the best worship, but what God provided for us was mentors and leaders who cared for us and who asked us questions. I remember going away to Bible college, I was 18, 19 years old, and Robert Rangel writing me handwritten letters, just personal letters to me, a, a mentor of mine in high school. The gift of God. And I could just keep going on and on and on, and I could talk about the way in which this community has been gift to me. I mean, coming here, before we even got here, uh, the Cineclus opening up their home and it was gift, we stayed there. And then when I got here, you know, uh, the Tripucos opening up their home where we were able to, to, to stay there for a few months while we were getting on our feet. And then new friends that God brought into our life and all around us gift and gift and gift and gift. The surprising provision of God all around. And I know I'm not alone, am I? 
I mean, just think for a moment about the people that God has brought into your life as an act of his sheer grace and you are surrounded by the provision of God. Yes, they're strange. I, you're, they're weird. And so are you. They are not promised land food. They have not always kept up their end of the deal. And sometimes they've let you down. But nonetheless, here is gift. You know, Bonhoeffer, in that little section I read to you earlier, where he talks about having this idealistic vision of what the church should be. He contrasts that with the proper attitude. And he says, the alternative to the critic and to the judge of everyone around you who's not living up to your high expectations is gratitude. And he says this, how can God entrust great things to the one who will not thankfully receive from him the little things? If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty. If on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us in Jesus Christ. The more thankfully we receive what has been given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. Now, of course, there's two sides to this equation. The manna was the sustenance of the people of God in the desert. But here, it's not just that people around you are your sustenance and are part of the manna that God used to sustain you through the wilderness. God wants to use you to help nourish and sustain others on this journey. You know, there are people in this community who need somebody to listen to them, who need somebody to visit them. There are children who need people who will commit to hanging out with them week after week and, t and teaching them. And they need, there's students that need mentors. There are lost couples that need wisdom. There, there are people that are in financial difficulties that need your generosity. There is all kinds of, like you are needed. And the spirit of God wants to continue to move in us so that he might work through us into the life of other people around us. And so God wants to use you to be provision to others. Now, of course, we need to say that the ultimate, the final, the provision of God, the bread from heaven is Jesus Christ himself. God gave his own son to ultimately be the nourishment and the sustenance of our own souls and life. It is Jesus who came into the world to ultimately take us all the way home to the promised land. But here's the truth that we've been learning about in 1 Corinthians is that Jesus uses his people to be agents in his work in our life. There's one more little application I wanna make here. And it's this, and we'll close with this. There's one more thing about the manna. The manna, it, it didn't get delivered to their front door. Like this wasn't an Amazon Prime thing where you could kind of order your groceries now at Whole Foods and get the groceries delivered to your door. I, I go to Whole Foods and I see I, every time, like I see like eight people, somebody shopping for them. I think, when am I gonna have somebody shop for me and bring it to my door? But no, 
the manna didn't come to the door. The manna didn't land on the table. It didn't feed them while they were in bed. In order to receive the free, gracious sustenance of God, they had to go out and gather it up. In other words, it demanded something of them. And listen, to really enjoy and to receive the benefits of community, it demands something from you. You have to get engaged. Now, yes, you have to get engaged with a gracious attitude, recognizing that the people that you're gonna get engaged with, they're not gonna meet you, they're gonna let you down, but you're gonna keep getting, you know, but you've got, to, you've got to go to the community group. You've got to stay committed to the, the, the team that's working with hospitality or with welcome ministry or with the children to the youth ministry. You've got to make those regular appointments to get together with your, you know, your, your guy friends or your girlfriends and, 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 and invest in each other and speak into each other. You have to do something. Reminds me of, uh, remember What About Bob? We just watched that with our kids this last summer. Remember that, that great uh, scene in the very beginning when uh, Richard Dreyfus is sitting in the room with Bill Murray, who of course is Bob. And Dreyfus says, I have exactly what you need. And he goes over to the bookshelf and there's like 40 copies of his book there. And he's like, oh, you know, he pulls it out and he shows him the cover and his face is on the cover. But then right underneath it is the phrase, baby steps. And Bob looks at this and he says, baby steps, what, what does that mean? And he responds, it means setting small reasonable goals for yourself one day at a time, one tiny step at a time. For instance, when you leave the office, don't think about everything you need to do to get out of the building. Just think about what you need to do to get out of this room. And when you get into the hall, don't think about what you need to, after you get out of the hall, deal with the hall and so on and so forth. And so Bob, of course, goes, Baby steps through the office, you know, baby steps out the door, you know, and then he turns and he says, it works, it works. And, you know, I think we can learn something about this when it comes to spiritual and community formation in the church. I think it was Shane Claiborne who said, everybody wants to change the world. Nobody wants to do the dishes. <laughs> and yet change takes place in the woof and wharf of the small decisions we make every day. And so as we come to the conclusion of this little series on the spirit and community, I just want you to ask yourself this question. What is the next baby step you need to take to move in to a deeper experience of Christian community? What is the next baby step you need to take to no longer simply be a consumer, but also a contributor? What is the next baby step you need to take to build relationships within this church family? What is your next step? Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we ask that your spirit would use this next space, would use this next time to convict us, to show us areas in our life that we need to address those baby steps we need to take. And we pray, God, that you would continue to shape and form us to your people. And we give you thanks for the gift and for the grace that is all around us. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this church family. God, you have been so gracious to us.